Welcome to Innovating Leadership, Co-Creating Our Future. I'm your host, Maureen Metcalf, founder and CEO of the Innovative Leadership Institute. I am delighted to have our guest, Christoph Henske. He is an associated professor of system leadership and activation of entrepreneurial ecosystems at the School of Finance and International Business. We're going to be talking specifically about a book that Christoph was the primary editor and he and I wrote a chapter in. So Christoph, tell us a little bit about it and how it came to be. Hi, Maureen. I'm happy to be on the show. And I just noticed that I forgot to mention to you that it's School of Finance and International Business at the University of Applied Science, Saxion in the Netherlands. So just wanted to add that. So the book was funded and financed and requested by the Federal Environment Agency. It's comparable to the Environmental Protection Agency in the United States, I think, EPA, no? And the book has 27 authors from 12 countries, Bangladesh, China, Brazil, United States, mostly Germany and Netherlands, which shows that it's very much a northern German-Dutch discourse, the circular economy. And the topic is about, well, the circular economy, how can we make waste production system to a system that says whatever comes out of my company, of my organization as so-called waste can be an input resource as good as possible for the next one. So it's about recycling, it's about refuse also, and it's about reuse, etc. So there are many principles, which I will not go into detail right now. In the end, the book is the fifth publication that we do, together with Taylor and Francis and Rutledge. And it really looks at the limits of the circular economy, because what we currently see a lot, at least in Europe, and globally, I think as well, is there's a hype. Circular economy, circularity, circularity, circularity. But if we really want to take this serious, we have to go beyond and we have to look beyond the charade, beyond the policy and marketing talk and really look at what's possible and what's not. And here we looked at resource and more relationship between integrated resource use. How do we use resources in an economy? And also, how is it from a systemic perspective connected to leadership and management perspectives? Give us the full title of the book, because that says a great deal as well. The Impossibilities of the Circular Economy, Separating Aspirations from Reality. Because there's a lot of aspirations then, and that's important. But for certain things, we have to get real. And I will come to this at a later stage in our conversation, I think, why we think that's important. Many of us do think that's important. Yeah, absolutely. Circular is good. We're not dissing circular. And there are limits. And using the ideas that you put forth in the book also talks about how do we turn this from impossibility and aspirations and circular washing to use that term, into true policy and action companies can take. Yeah. And also what's really important, I'm one of the co-editors. So the book was co-edited by four different people. Harry Lehmann, he lives in Germany and he's a director of the PTX lab, one of the Europe's largest labs on green hydrogen fuel. And he's a physicist and his whole life, he's working on that. And actually this whole Factor X series, where this book was just the fifth publication on, this is kind of his brainchild. And then there was me and then there was Victoire de Marguerite, an important person in the resource field from France, and Aneta Slavia-Kova-Nikolova from Europe. NESCAP, which is United Nations Asia Pacific. And we were the four co-editors of this book, being able to look from different perspectives on that. Yes. As you said, the book is not about dissing circular economy. We say the circular economy is really important. It is important to change our economy. I think that's most of people globally would agree with that. We have to come to a different economic model. Which one is it? Coming from linear thinking to more circular to more systemic thinking is really important in that. 
Describe for people who we may be using different definitions for systemic thinking. One of the core ideas of the circular economy is, and I'm really simplifying this right now, yes, extraordinary simplifying, and economists will probably punch me for that, but I'm very much simplifying it. If I have a company or an organization, I have resources, I take those resources into my organization, whatever kind of resources I need, I take it into my organization, I rearrange those resources by working with them, I add value, and then I take them and I put them back to the market and then I sell it and there's a price add to that because I organize the resources in a specific way. And that's simple principle. But then part of what comes out is I can move forward, I sell it and give to someone else, but there's also waste that comes out. There's stuff that comes out of my production process, which is not, well, I can't sell excess heat or chemicals or whatever stuff. And normally, where would it go? It would go to the landfill, it would go into nature, it would go to nowhere because who cares? Yeah, the planet's big enough. On a planet which is populated with more than 8 billion people, we can't think anymore in this way. And we have so much toxic materials, etc. We have to think, okay, the stuff that comes out of my organization, of my company, which normally would go somewhere, how can we use that? There's actually a lot of value to that. One really interesting article, for example, in our paper was about urban mining. You can become really rich by just sweeping together the dust at the edge of the highways in the United States and taking all this dust and incinerating it. And out of that, you can extract copper, gold, and all those precious materials. One of the largest gold mines in Japan actually was not a gold mine, but was actually from a sewage system treatment plant. So there is a lot of waste that's not waste. And for that, it's really important that we say, how can we, the stuff that comes out of our economic system, out of our businesses, etc., how can we capture this? And there's a lot of value in that. And how can we reuse it? And also, how can we, for example, fast fashion is another thing. Normally, I buy a blues, I wear it a week, and then I throw it away. Well, that's just really stupid. The stuff that I wear, where can I give it to so that it's still of use, that, that the garment can be still used, etc. So there is a gazillion of possible examples of how the stuff that comes out of my organizations is of use somewhere else, even so it's not more of use for me. Yes. And again, that's just one of the principles there. And that's a fundamental difference between a linear economy and a more circular economy. We, in our book, looked at what are the impossibilities of that? Because one of the underlying assumptions, really simple, in the circular economy is that I have a resource, I have something, a material, let's say a garment, something to make clothes, yes, and I create genes out of that, and then I recycle the genes, and then it comes back, and then we have this endless cycle. That's not true. That doesn't work. A, because we have losses, which we call the dissipation losses. We have wonderful articles on that. We always lose. And also in order to recycle, a lot about this in the circular economy, it's about recycling. Whenever we recycle something, there's an irony to it. When we recycle it, we need new materials and we need energy. So we never have a 100% closed loop, which is independent from energy and material input. So we always need energy and materials in order to keep the loop running. Circular economy helps us to reduce the amount of materials and energy that we use overall in our economy. That's true. However, it's not 100%. And this is something that we look at. If we do as a company an investment into circular economy, into circular business processes, or production processes, we have to be aware that it's never 100%. Mm -hmm. Again, it's just one example here. Years ago, I lived in a condo that had wall-to-wall -wall carpeting, and I purchased carpeting that was some percentage made from recycled bottles. 
I was in Europe and realized I had not packed properly and purchased a dress that some component of the dress was made from recycled plastic. So it's interesting where this recycling, especially of single-use plastics, is ending up. But to your point, somebody had to take those plastics, move them from the consumer of the water or whatever to a plant, apply energy, then mix it with the fabrics, the carpet fabrics and the dress fabrics, and then restitch something new. So resources are used for that transformation. Yes, and I think that's a wonderful example, Maureen. And that's also, there's a wonderful article by Tom Boschert of uh, Circularity is not sustainability. One of the authors who looked at this narrative of circularity. And one of the things that I learned from this article is I have 100 plastic bottles. Instead of asking the question, how can I reuse those plastic bottles for T-shirt, a pullover or a wall or a carpet? I should ask a different question. I should ask, do we need 100 bottles? <laughs> Do we actually need that? And this is something what I started to learn from reading all those articles from all those brilliant people around the world is circular economy does not solve the problem of using less. Fundamentally, asking the question, do we need this kind of overproduction that we have in our current global economy? One of the key principles in the circular economy is it's about refusing, but it's not stressed enough. So the important question to me is rather, how can we build an economy where it's less about well-having, but more about well-being. And that's also one of our fundamental insights that we created out of this book is, yes, we have all the technologies that we need as a humanity in order to thrive, to flourish, etc. But are we using our economy, which is a means towards an end, towards well-having or well-being? And the circular economy does not ask a question of indigenous rights, labor rights, gender rights, LBGTQ rights, etc., etc., does not ask that. Sustainability does. yeah. But now, and this is in the article of Tom Boschert so beautifully, now the more we really put energy and money and investments into the circular economy, which is more about production processes, energy efficiency of production process, resource and material efficiency, which is really important, but completely misses the point of helping us to ask the question, do we need that much? Do we need three Teslas at home or is a bike enough? So circular is a subset of sustainability then? Absolutely. One of the beauties for me of circular economy is it helps me as a business owner to start asking questions about production processes. How can I create my production processes in my company? How can I create them and save massive amounts of money by just saying, you know what, all the stuff that goes out there is actually not waste. I can actually use that and make money with it. It depends on the company. Yeah, That's a power. However, I also want to stress the advice that we give to companies to invest in circular principles. We have to make the distinction. Is this a circular principle that I'm just promoting based on some marketing promo stuff? Or is it really based on physical insights, on, on the physics of nature? Because again, the perpetual motion machine does not exist. And I will always have losses in my company. So where is the money that I put in? So yes, circular economy is a really important tool that helps me as a business owner to start thinking about sustainability on a really practical level. Because one of the things that I think is really not helpful with a lot of the sustainability discourse and also United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, it's really abstract. Circular economy makes it really concrete, like circular business models, everything as a service, a washing machine as a service, car as a service, rate as a service, etc. This is a circular business model as well. However, we never should forget that our economy happens, also the circular economy happens within physical realities. And those physical realities are bound to laws of thermodynamics. 
really concrete example is, yes, we can have all the energy in the world that we would need to have whole Europe run on renewable energies. We could potentially do that. We could potentially run United States and Europe on solar power on renewable energy. The problem is we do not have enough materials available for us that we can mine without destructing our planet in order to build all the infrastructure that we need to get this renewable energy to the right place. We don't have that. And so it's a great narrative. Absolutely. And it sounds wonderful. Yeah, you know, we can just continue as we continue with our infinite growth economy, etc. And everyone can have this economy that we have. Like, no, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. It's based on this fundamental assumption of we can have all the materials and all the energy in the world, which is just not true. There is a lot of assumptions behind the circular economy, which we have to check them. Because if not, we give recommendations to business owners. Yeah, invest into your company, 100% renewables. In the last years in Germany, we had a strong conversation about shifting towards renewable energies. And now we shifted to renewable energies. A lot of people invested a lot of money into pellets, wood pellets. Wonderful. It's super sustainable. Wonderful. We have a lot of wood pellet heating or solar panel heating. Now what turns out, <laughs> because of climate change, the amount of wood pellets that we would need in order to have everyone have wood pellets to figure out, we don't have the amount of sustainable grown forests globally to serve this demand because overall the amount of wood that is available from the forests that we have, that we can harvest sustainably is declining because of climate change. A different example is Europe, especially Germany, we invested millions and millions and millions and billions of dollars into solar energy. Now we have all those solar panels. And you can only fully recycle the solar panels, I think, to 70 or 80% you can recycle them under laboratory conditions. You can't recycle. We don't yet have really found ways of how to recycle solar panels and wind turbines. But it's a solution. But the circular economy narrative makes us just invest more into solar energy, more into wind energy, and, you know, one day we will find the solution. Like, hmm. And this is also the questions that we start asking in the book. You're not saying don't invest in solar or wind. Absolutely not. You are saying look at the end-to-end -end systemic concerns. Exactly. If we think about project life cycle, I need to think about birth to death and exit cost, not just entry cost. Exactly, exactly. And what I noticed is there are a lot of consultants currently running out there with their toolbook. That's what we love when we're consultants. We have our toolbook and then we run around with our toolbook about the circular economy. Is this a solution? I'm running around with my hammer, the circular economy and do this and this and then like, oh yeah, yeah, wait, 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 wait. Before we do that, let's have broader look. And this is exactly why we wrote the book of saying, yes, we want to promote the circular economy, but again, also look at labor rights. If you invest into solar energy, do you impact your local community? If you put up solar energy plants for your company, do you put them up in a way that you benefit your local community or that you don't benefit your local community? But if I only look at the amount of energy that I want to save by putting solar energy on my roof, I will not ask questions of social equity, not automatically. Some consultants might do that, and that's good for them. Great that they do it. But the standard, I have not seen that. And it's also not that I know everything, but that's what I started to see. Of, and that's why we said it's so important that we look with our book at what are those impossibilities. So yes, invest in circularity, but be careful. Let's go in then to the way you organize the book, because I think that then breaks down a little more about how to think about this whole circular concept. Yeah, there are four parts in the book. 
And the first is, what do we dream of? Kind of what is the vision? What is this dream that we look at? And then we look at this dream really carefully. And what are the blind spots? And what do we think we need to stress more if we want to make the circular economy a really robust economy? And what opportunities do we see? And one, Rainier de Man, he's actually, he wrote the very first article in this book titled Circularity Dreams, Denying Physical Realities. And he so beautifully said it that the circular economy is not even an economy. It's a design principle. And it's right. It's a wonderful design principle, but it's not an economic principle. It's not an economy. It's, it's an important thinking concept that helps us to rethink our circular economy, but it's a design principle firsthand. And so there he starts. And another thing that really got me on my toes, what I found really, really interesting when we started to scout researchers, professors, practitioners for the book, Maureen, you can't imagine how many people said, I'm not sure if I can contribute to such a book. Like, why? Well, I, I think it might be dangerous if I contribute to a book which critically looks at the circular economy because it's just so pushed, I might not get funding. Okay, now you got me. Now we do it. <laughs> no, and this can't be. And then there were at least two professors from university who said, well, I'm not sure if I can contribute that because a lot of our funding actually comes from certain kind of companies and organizations. And if I'm now critical, I might be the party pooper. And this is why we always start our conversations with, we're not the party poopers. The circular economy is really important. We're promoting it. It's really important. However, to make it rock solid, we have to ask fundamental questions. Like, for example, every single book that I read about the circular economy has a fundamental assumptions that human beings can collaborate. And that's plain wrong. Our economy is not designed to collaborate, period. We have wonderful articles on that. And in our article, we so beautifully describe, I think, um, which is mostly based on, on your work on the consciousness development. Where are we as human beings? And only 8% of Western leader managers are able to think in complex ways. However, in every single circular economy book, I read like, oh, there's this fundamental assumption that since yesterday, people can think in complex systems, collaborate across and between supply chains. Like, well, no, <laughs> no. Yes, we can potentially, but we have to invest in people. Good news is, that's what we also found in our article, no? it's we can, but it takes time. But if I look at our university structures, our university structures and educational system is not designed to help students think more systemically, think across and between supply chains, think across and between sectors, cultures, etc. But this is a fundamental assumption which is embedded not only in circular economy, also in, in sustainability. But in circularity economy, it's just like, we can do this. No, we can't. We can't. The limitations in leadership mindset, I would say, is parallel to the limitation in physical resources. We may not have enough rare earth minerals. We also don't have enough rare leader thinking to elevate the way we lead so that circularity sustainability, ESG, that I'll put in a package of constructs that will be required to move us forward. And each of those has their own impossibilities and their own solutions, but they're not quick solutions. There's a lot of ESG bashing, so environmental, social, and governance in the U.S., for similar reasons to the circularity bashing. If you take it to an extreme, it doesn't make sense. There are things we need to do systemically to address the limitations, and yet we don't stop being environmentally conscious because we don't have all the systems available. 
We don't stop addressing social justice issues because we don't have yet the thinking and the systems available. We need to concurrently implement what we can, pay attention to the systems, pay attention to the life cycle, and continue to build the constructs and refine them. Some of them we're experimenting with. And that's what our post-conventional or late-stage leaders are able to do, is continue to build out the frameworks while we are concurrently implementing what we can. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I noticed, and obviously before we started to write the books and scouting authors, and we really have amazing authors in there. Some of the first ones who were writing about this stuff globally, and one that I had long conversations with, he's not in the book, but I had long conversations with him. They wanted to contribute, but then, you know, everything else happened and they're publishing just other books was Ken Webster. And Ken Webster is one of the leading minds behind the circular economy with Walter Stahel. And Ken Webster worked, I don't know if he still works, for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, which is one of the driving forces. When I read his book, I got really excited. Everything that you just talked about, that you just mentioned, he really nails there beautifully. Thinking this complexity thinking, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I think in the, this foundational text of the circular economy, we have it in there. Just if I now look at the application level of how we start simplifying it with our karaoke templates <laughs> that we use as consultants with businesses, all this complexity stuff is completely lost. And the reality is there is nuance. Yeah. The old Ross Perot, just keep it simple, adages don't work in a world where the nuances actually influence the outcome. Yeah. Yeah. We recently did research study in the Euregio, Euregion, region, which is a, it's a border region between the Netherlands and Germany. And there we worked with 36 small, medium-sized enterprises in the maker industry, production industry. And is there actually a need or do they see the cost benefits of moving from linear more to circular, more to sustainable business models, et cetera? And, and would there be a need and what would this need look like? Is it about helping them to redesign the business models? It's about helping them to get access to better raw materials, et cetera, et cetera, or matchmaking with the front runners and the laggards, et cetera. And one of the things that really came out, more than 97% of leaders and we had really great sample of top level management working for many years in the company. And so having a good overview of what's needed. And 97% of them said, we need support in order to understand the new complexity of the radical changing supply chain. So it was really about, I need leadership help, understanding and grasping the complexity. Here we go. And this was for me exactly. So yes, we also need upskilling and reskilling and we need raw materials and we need production process, et cetera. But we also need support that our leadership team can understand complexity. And the second number, which was really interesting, more than 60% of the business owners said, I feel alone with my wish to transform my company. Does that mean that the other executives in the company don't share that wish or they don't have a network outside of their company with other executives trying to do the same thing? That's a really good question. I can't give an informed answer to this question. My assumption from the data that we looked at is most of them feel alone because within their company, they do not feel support or they feel like they have to fight for that. And there is not the business cases yet lagging or missing and well, the added value, you know, and why should we do that? And I would dare to say, yes, they also lack the support system. And this is exactly where we're now starting in the second, we hope that we will get the second phase of the European funded project, five year long, where we will start exactly creating this kind of network. So we will work on three levels. A, how can we support 
on a local level, really is a business owner and the leader manager within his organization, in his leadership skills, we will help them to redesign their operational and business models and operational processes. But then we will also look at a more ecosystemic level of saying, we will not be able to transform our economy if we only always work with organizations individually, independently. We have to start matching them. We have to start helping them to grow together as front runners and help them to start creating this new ecosystem. And that's exactly what the first persons talking about the circularity said. This is what we need. We need a much more systemic approach of ecosystemic approach. We have wonderful articles on that. Also, Jim Ritchie Dunham writing about exactly this aspect and uh, was a wonderful article where he pulls this, what you and I are writing about on the leadership management level, kind of consciousness behavior stuff. He pulls this and down up to, okay, we also have to look to the ecosystemic level. Our current economy is not designed for collaboration. Therefore, it can't create an ecosystem. And in that, he talks as a support for collaboration about the kinds of agreements we as leaders make. Exactly. I really want to make the case is, yes, circular economy is really, really important. It's a really important stepping stone for humanity to make the next step out of an economy which is destructive. I think there's no arguing about that, that our current way of doing business, of doing stuff as an economy, as societies, is radically destructive to our planet Earth, to our home. And the circular economy is a really important tool in our tool set to help organizations move out, to have more Patagonias in the world. And there are many brilliant examples. There was this carpet maker, United States carpet maker, who was becoming one of the leading edge things of being the carpet tiles. I forgot the name of the carpet tile company. Radically circular, wonderful, super powerful company. And really interesting. It's a really important stepping stone towards something else. What the something else is, we will still see. But circular economy is not the end. It's a tool towards an end of well-being, flourishing, regenerative economy. I don't know. It's a stepping stone. So it's a really an important point that I want to make here. Yeah. Christoph, you've been involved in systemic thinking and the idea of flourishing and well-being for at least 15 years since I've known you. What got you started in this? Because you're quite passionate about it. Studying forestry. I studied international forest ecosystem thinking, and my father is a gynecologist, and might be a strange example here, but I was born in a country that doesn't exist anymore, so I'm born in Eastern Germany, and we escaped in 86 because my parents never fitted the system. And why we didn't fit the system? Because my father was always in the political opposition. And one of the reasons why he was, because he never went into military service. And he said, I'm giving life, I'm not taking life. And so for me, it was always a question, how can we create systems that create life? that enhance life. And the forest is a wonderful, it's a brutal system. It's a very brutal system. You don't get something for free there. It's still, it's overall, it's about homeostasis. It's about perfect equilibrium that life can thrive. It's not about the individual tree. If you tree don't perform well, then you are out. Sorry for you. However, life will always prevail. That's a part of the system. If it's not the forest anymore, then there will be a state shift towards the savanna. There's still life. What we are currently doing with our economic system, we are destroying the very fundamental abilities of our global ecosystems to sustain human higher forms of life on this planet. There will always be human beings on this planet. There will always be life on this planet. The question is, can our planetary system, Gaia, however you want to call it, sustain those kind of high cultures that we really fragile high cultures? Look at Hurricane Katrina, Old New Orleans. 
one of the most powerful countries in the planet. It'll, comes a storm, it'll, city gone. You know, super fragile. And we are so fragile. Our economies are so fragile. Our industry, our industrial systems are so fragile if the full force of nature comes in. So how can we create an economic system? And again, circularity is part of that, that really creates this impact-resilient economic system that helps us to not only regenerate our planet, but be there for the next thousand years because it's pretty straightforward. We will not live for a thousand years on this planet with this current thing before we will just go down the drain. And this really passions me. So the thing of understanding how nature does it and this question, how do I have to be in order to enhance life? And that's what I learned from my fathers and from my mother. I love the idea of enhancing life and impact resilience. Some call it anti-fragile resilience. I want to come back to, and I think this very much connects, Marine, to actually your core principles of what you were writing about, and which was also in our article. I think perhaps it's now interesting to connect this here to kind of those seven principles of leadership that you're looking at, because I think this perfectly caters to that, doesn't it? It does. And specifically, anti-fragile resilience. We've been writing more about VUCA, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous in our times. And the antidote to that being having a vision, which you've laid out very clearly, understanding, so understanding of circular systems, clarity, and agility or adaptability. I've seen it as both. And how do we as leaders move from, oh no, the world's crazy and we are not going to thrive for the next thousand years Climate impacts are certainly escalating, and they have had a devastating impact on our economy in some sectors, which we are now going to absorb as taxpayers in some countries, and disproportionate, quote, tax on poorer countries that don't have the resources, had less contribution to the cause, but are certainly bearing the cost of flooding and climate migration. All of these are now at play It's fascinating to watch, as you said, academic leaders who felt like they weren't free to talk about the impossibilities and the constraints. In some cases, business leaders not feeling either the need or comfortable talking about the challenges with the need to be environmentally conscious, feeling alone in believing that we need to make these investments and yet getting hit with activist investors on either side, some that say you absolutely need to do it quicker. We've got other investors who are saying, we don't support this ESG stuff. We think it's financially not viable. And so leaders are now stuck in the middle trying to figure out what supports their enterprise. And so few of them are really looking across the ecosystem because we haven't trained them to do this. Exactly. And so we created this comic to the book and the comic designer did this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful work. So we took the articles and asked the authors, what is the one sentence that you would like the audience to remember if they would read your article? And if it would be a second sentence, what would be the second sentence? So the graphic designer, Vipi Oinonen from Finland, I highly recommend her. She's a magician. She created this comic and one of the best pictures, which goes viral on LinkedIn. It's amazing. Tens, thousands of clicks and people just use it and use it and use it. And I see it coming back and again and again. It's amazing to see. <laughs> this wonderful, it's a circle. And the circle is made out of metal and it looks like this machine 
like this industrial machine and there's even this little door in the circle it's open and in the circle you see all those wheels working and it actually said and sadly our current thinking and circularity is still based on the 19th century linear models and not system thinking so in the end saying we just bend at the line so we're not really creating a system here mm. it's still linear but it's a round line and then we come back to the leadership capacities and behaviors of if i take a line And out of a linear behavior mindset, mm -hmm. I bend it. I just have a bended line and I might run around in a circle, but I run around in a circle with a linear mindset. And to me, it's really what you mentioned is we also have to work on the mindset, helping people to start thinking beyond their limitations, beyond our limitations, beyond what is my worldview? What is your worldview? How can we integrate this worldview? And there is no right or wrong. There is just an opinion, no? And this was for me one of the, is it called epiphany moments, but really this insight moments like, yeah, exactly. If we do not change our mindsets, how we see the world, that perhaps there's a lot of truth in indigenous knowledge, which we have in sustainability discourse, we have that, we're losing that. And that's one, what I mentioned before, this Tom Borchardt article, the more we invest into circularity, which is only about the production system, we lose a lot of the richness that we accumulated as society through our discourse that we have since the 60s, since the Battle of Seattle, around sustainability and gender rights, indigenous rights, etc., and indigenous knowledge. Circular economy does not capture that. So a lot of the resources that we normally invested in the discourse on all this richness about humanity, we are now divesting from there, this discourse, into a, let's create a next better Tetra Pak, 20% less energy. Like, wow, this will not save the world. It's 20% less energy. We are divesting resources towards a discourse which will not happen. And we lose energy and money to have the right discourse, to ask the right questions. And that's what I see in our university programs as well, that we now have all those wonderful university programs, but we're not asking fundamental questions that are much more important. Do you need three cell phones? <laughs> yeah, the reduce. Yeah. Christoph, one of the things as we move the conversation toward the mindsets, but also the practicality of implementing circular economy and I'll say larger sustainability programs. One of the things we haven't talked about is the cost of transition. So we move from a linear economy to circular economy. Some of it is certainly retraining leaders. But there's also a huge human cost, and you alluded to this previously as the social cost, that we often put undesirable architecture in poor neighborhoods. So maybe my poor neighborhood gets all the windmills, but they don't necessarily also get access to the less expensive energy at the same time. So they are often impacted negatively, but don't equally share the benefits. So can we talk a little bit about jobs are going to go away when things become circular, or they're going to change. There will be fewer of jobs X and more of jobs Y. Are we training people? Often the folks who lose their jobs have the lowest savings rates and some of those things, and they're not then assisted in retraining to take these new roles. And then we're faced with an imbalance of labor to do the new jobs, like installing solar panels, as an example or the manufacturing process for windmills, that we may stop manufacturing something in the refinery space. We may make less oil and gas, but the people who were working in the refineries may not equally walk across the street to work in a solar panel manufacturing plant because that's happening more in China. 
So can you talk a little bit about the equity first, and then let's also talk about single points of failure? When we did the research, working with small, medium-sized enterprises here in the region, we asked them, what are the most important strategic resources that you need in order to be able to make this transition, to flourish, to be successful in 20, 30 years? Because... Europe will become circular, period. It's not a question of sustainability and we want to be hippies. It's a matter of national security because we are over-dependent. And this is what we saw. We are over-dependent on our gas and our energy systems, overly dependent on one major actor, which we now see is unbearable to do negotiations with in Europe. And so we need to diversify that. And one of the things that we ask them, so what are the strategic resources that you need in order to be able to be successful in this new future? Because we will become circular, period. European Green Deal, keyword here. If we clustered them and there were five coming out and for our conversation, it's no most important is, yes, we have to absolutely reskill and upskill and skill people. So no, in order for decision makers in organizations to go from linear to circular, certain things have to be in place. A, we need basic raw materials, period, input materials, given, check mark. We need the right business models. We need to start changing our business models. There is a wide array of really innovative business models which helps us to become more circular and capture more value and different values and multiple value creation. Then we also have upskilling and reskilling labor. When then we ask what kind of skills do those people need? Well, definitely kind of new technical skills, etc. but also really important skills that allow us as businesses to collaborate across and between supply chains, something that I mentioned before. Because if we can't do that, we will lose out in this new economy. The economy is radically about collaborating with others in order to co-create value in ecosystems. And organizations who are not able to do that and employees who are not willing in their consciousness development or they just say, I hate to work with you, I like you, but let's do it my way. <laughs> well, they will have a hard time. It's my prediction. They will have a really hard time to be able to succeed with their business and to succeed within business. So there will be losers. There will be people who will lose out if they don't transition because our economies will transition, period. I would give my little finger for that. And if we don't accept, if we don't adjust, individuals in organizations will lose out and even businesses and whole regions will lose out. What's a concrete example of collaborating between supply chains? We can come to the very beginning of our conversation. Remember, in the very beginning, we said, my waste is your input. Really simple. We also, we know it's not always that true, but let's say that's a simple principle. The stuff that I don't need might be your input. But I will only see that the stuff that goes out from my organization, let's say a certain chemical, yeah, that I normally would have to pay a lot of money in order to get discharged and et cetera, et cetera, if I look at my industry. But if I look at a different industry, don't have a good example now, which is a complete different supply chain, which is a different industry, a, a different, uh, perhaps even a different culture in a different country, this might then be a really valuable input resource for a process that they need. I would never be able to see that if I'm not looking left and right to companies and businesses that there, which are not in my industry conference. If I go to a conference, I normally am surrounded by people of my industry. That's a kind of industry conferences, isn't it? But normally if I go to those conferences, I don't have ecosystem conferences where they bring together the different players where we can go beyond supply chains, but supply nets. 
and where we can start thinking, well, interestingly, so this is what you need. You know, by coincidence, I have enough of it and actually have to get rid of it. So could we make a deal? And so this is really concretely, but we will not come to this if we design our really concrete, our industry leading conferences where we pay a lot of money to get there. But am I actually only talking to the people upstream and downstream of our businesses and perhaps to a few politicians? But we're not talking about to industries who would never be on my radar. And if I don't have the mindset of being able to go out of my box and to think collaboratively, I will never find them. So an example then would be chip recycling, that when I complete use with my computer, I send it off to an organization that disassembles it and reclaims the rare earth minerals, coppers and silvers and things on the chips to then be reused in future production. For example, yes. And here we also, again, have to start thinking this requires energy and it just doesn't happen in thin air. So it requires energy and materials. But I think, matter of fact, is Germany is one of these largest or second largest or one of the leading, I think it was copper, exporters in the world. We don't have one copper mine. <laughs> it's all recycling. I don't know exact numbers, so please don't name me on the numbers here. But I saw this once, this documentary about resources in Germany. And, and it just flabbergasted me. I mean, how can we become one? We are a global player in this metal. We have there's not one mine and we sell it out of this recycled stuff. And I found this really interesting. However, I want to, and this comes to this point of failure here. What I want to really bring it back to is that we do not make the same mistake as we had it with our energy system. We were so over-reliant, again, in our energy system on those one or two big players. And now when we look at renewable energies, if we look especially, let's take the example of solar energy and all those wonderful, beautiful, high-tech solar panels, wonderful, super important. We need more of that. We need a lot of raw earth for that, rare earth. Where do those rare earths come from? In the deep seas of, of Australia, they found new things that will last for the next 200 years or a few hundred years, but it's super expensive and difficult to get there. We might be ready in 20 to 30 years. We don't have this amount of time left. So yes, there are still those deposits of rare earths. Currently, rare earths, where does it come from? China. Do we want to become over-reliant on China? Hmm, I don't know. It's great to do business with China, probably. I have never done it. I don't want to say don't do it. Do it, but let's not create a whole economy based on one single point of input. That's super dangerous. And why? Well, we just saw it. So really diversifying our energy system, our resource input system, and also really, really looking into, do I have to have my heating the whole winter through at 20 degrees, at 18, at 90 degrees? I'm sitting, and that's my contribution to ending the war in Ukraine. Since months, I'm sitting with 16, 16 degrees Celsius in my office, and it's perfect. I have a hot tea here. I love it. It's a matter of getting adjusted to it. And our energy bill goes down. But those are the kind of questions that we're not asking enough in the circular economy discourse. We need to ask that. So I hope this caters a little bit to your question or to the points that you wanted to open. It does. Thank you. And now let's pivot a little bit because we've talked around the leadership mindsets, but we haven't really talked specifically about them. Since our chapter is focusing on what do we need to help leaders build? Let's hit on what that looks like. Does that work for you? Absolutely. Happy to do so. One of the seven mindsets, and we talk about them as mindsets because as Christoph, you're talking about that we are looking at more mature leaders. And by mature, we mean developing their thinking capacity to more nuance and more complexity. We mean emotional intelligence. We mean 
adapting behaviors, as we've talked about, we as leaders often feel lonely, and yet we take the choices to do the things that are really hard that some of our investors won't like it. Some of our employees won't like it. We may have activists. That makes our lives much more complicated. And yet we take these decisions because our meaning-making algorithm, the way we look at the world says, kind of like you're saying, this isn't optional. It will happen. I must do this. If I have that mindset, then there are things that are evidence of that mindset. Right. So if I'm looking at a leader who has this mindset, they demonstrate a level of professional humility. We talked about experimentation, that I am willing to try things that are not yet proven because circular economy and sustainability, and I'll throw in again ESG, many of these are new business models, new ways of thinking. It's not like I can go to the rule book and say, this is how I do it, and I'm guaranteed to succeed. I'm constructing it as we go. So I have to have the ability to know that I am committing to something that is bigger than me, bigger than my organization, creating a planet that's sustainable in a thousand years. And that means I have to acknowledge when I don't know what I'm doing. I have to acknowledge when I've done the best I can, and I still make mistakes. So the the professional humility, unwavering commitment to right action, This isn't optional. It's hard. It's complicated, all of those things. But I am so committed to this as one of the many things I care about. So circular economy, but also equity. I want to make sure my employees are treated fairly. I want to make sure that my customers are getting good value for the money they pay me. So it's this very large equation that I'm solving for. And that's the 360 degree thinking. If I'm looking across my ecosystem, I'm balancing the needs of all of my stakeholders. And those are always competing. My employees want to make more money. Everyone wants to make more money. They never send it back when we pay them. It's really important what you say was being able to balance the needs of my different stakeholders. And here I would ask, do we really across our educational system, and I'm very much coming from our educational system, I'm a consultant or I'm a professor or an educator in a university or out there. Also as a consultant, I'm kind of an educator. Mm -hmm. Do I have the right tools that help me to empower the business owner to balance the needs of different stakeholders in a way that everyone wins afterwards? Mostly, if I take linear approaches, no. And this is what I mean with um, what are the tools that we're using Well, that's what I want to say was, what are the tools that we're using and that we're promoting out there? Are we using the old tools to build a new system? We will never get there. And we know this from Einstein. You know the beautiful quote, no? We will not get there. But what are the new tools? And is the circular economy really promoting the right tools to do exactly that, what you're just saying? And those are the hard questions that we have to ask. And are we really using the systemic tools, for example? Are we really helping business owners to be able to think balanced? <laughs> There's a thinking way behind that. What you say, am I able to do that? Well, yes, if we do it my way. <laughs> like, you listeners, you probably never heard that sentence. <laughs> we never heard that sentence. No, every day we hear it. Indirect, we always hear the sentence. We need to collaborate more, but according to my conditions. Do it my way. Yeah, but trying to underline what you're saying. Yeah. So next, and this gets to our education system as well. Am I intellectually versatile? The common term is, do I have a growth mindset? So this is the antidote to do it my way. This is the, 
I'm willing to try things new and novel, that means I have to be reflective. I'm trying something new. Did it work? Am I uncomfortable? How do I get through this way of doing things that is undefined, which means I'm not going to get it right? Yeah. Back to the professional humility. I, I know that when I'm doing something new, I'm experimenting. And if I'm lucky and really good, I'm going to be mostly on. But for many of us, I'm going to make mistakes. And here I want to pull it really to the ground. I assume most of our listeners, in the one or other way, they have to deal with business models. And so I'm working in the Academy of Finance and International Business, and there we're looking at um, sustainable business models and circular business models of value flow, multiple value creation. And one of the things that I see a lot in business owners, small, medium-sized business owners, but also larger ones and larger companies, is because of the kind of value creation model that we have embedded in our system, there is no chance that I can come into a growth mindset. I might be ready to come into a growth mindset to learn that, but the very system that I built around me doesn't allow me to go because I'm constantly bumping against walls. I'm bumping against KPIs. I'm bumping against the systems that are designed, which is designed in a specific way of growth. So I can't see a different way of growth. And that's something that really opened my mind of working with business research. Now, what are those business models that help me to capture all of those different values that I before could, by definition, not see by looking through my old lens of my old business model. And because I'm using a new form of business model, there's a myriad and wonderful, uh, hundreds of wonderful, really new ways of looking and capturing value and seeing and capturing value. And then suddenly I can think this whole new universe of growth potential, of growth opportunities, and suddenly, well, I can grow. There's an opportunity for growth. I see choice. It's a U.S. example. One of my greatest examples I have seen in the last two months was the company. It's a carpet tile company. It's Interface. Interface, a carpet tile company. Everyone I can recommend to look up the case of Interface, how the company from one of the most polluting companies kind of putting carpet tiles and really dirty plastic and, you know, this glue, what they use to put this stuff in the, one of the most radically sustainable front-running businesses in the world in carpet tiles. Wonderful. And one of the things they did it, how did they change the way of seeing value that actually in this business, business growth is not only one way, there is a myriad of ways of how we can grow our business and even sustainability. We can grow massively our business and we can save a lot of costs because they engaged every single employee in their company. They made it, co-own it. And there was this message, there's actually a movie out there. In Europe, you can't access it in the cinema and there's a paywall. We saw it in our university. They had this event in this hotel. Hundreds of people, like all employees of the company went there in the hotel and they, they talked about sustainability and they noticed we're in this hotel, which is super unsustainable, da 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 And they made, uh, with this top-notch sustainability researchers, were invited and saying, okay, how can we now position this topic here? Because the CEO, for him, it was really important. And then they said, you know what? Let's try to be here for a week and let's see what we can achieve as employees if we act a little different in this hotel and then look at the numbers of how we can help the hotel to become more, increase their business performance by reducing the water that we use, by reusing the bed sheets that we use, and, 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 and. And so they took their employees on this journey of seeing there is a huge business value and then every single evening or Every second evening, they showed the numbers. That's the amount of money that we saved. That's the amount of resources that we saved for the business, for this hotel. And after this day, most of the employees of the Carpetal company were convinced that this is a way to go, that this is the future because they saw 
how they can impact by changing behaviors on the ground today, the future of this hotel. This is what we want. That's a beautiful example then of the final two mindsets. One is collaboration. So everyone in the company collaborated. And the second is inspiring followership. For that leader who said, let's partner with the hotel and let's measure this, which of those employees wants to go back and do it the old way? No one. Because they are inspired to do something differently, not because I told you so, but because of the way the leader of that organization collaborated with them and demonstrated what they were trying to create rather than directing people. But also, I think here we have to be fair to say, if there are people who say, I don't want, then having the hard conversation, I'm sorry. Absolutely. I'm very sorry. We are going into this direction. If you can't adjust, then perhaps we are not anymore the right way for you to flourish. If I can't inspire you, then you can go somewhere, yeah, <laughs> go work yeah, for someone who does inspire you. Yeah. So, and this is what I mean. We also have to talk about this, this stuff that there are losers, there will be losers, and that's okay. I would call them people misaligned. Misaligned people, yeah who then search a different future for themselves outside of the organization. Mm -hmm. This has been an amazing conversation, and I know we could talk for much longer because you and I have talked for much longer. But for our listeners, uh, we're going to wrap up and hopefully reconvene this conversation in a few months with our new collaborators on the next book chapter that's coming out on a similar topic with Mike Morrowfox and Jim Ritchie Dunham. So that's the teasing for the next interview that will happen in 2023. Thank you so much for editing the book, but most of all for sharing with our listeners your brilliant insights on all of the research that you did to pull this book together, the 27 chapters and the hundreds of papers you've read and articles you've read and books you've read that allowed you to curate this content in such a beautiful way. Thank you so much. Christoph, how do our listeners get in touch with you and learn more about the book, about Saxion, and about you? Obviously, they can find me on LinkedIn, Christoph Hinsky, or also just Google the impossibilities of the circular economy, and then you will find the book websites, the comic website, you will find me on LinkedIn there. Cool. And Saxion University? And you can obviously also find me in the eastern part of the Netherlands if you want to have a good tea and beetje croquetje, so fried stuff, which we love in the Netherlands. You can find me in the eastern part of the Netherlands at the Saxion University of Applied Science, saxion.nl. Thank you. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. I hope that today's conversation gave you a lot of new information about the circular economy, about sustainability, and about the role you can play as you move forward. For a daily tidbit from us and from our guests, be sure to follow us at the Innovative Leadership Institute on LinkedIn. <music>